This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What signs and symptoms do you look for when you're assessing someone for ADHD? If you're an adult who suspects you have ADHD and you want to get assessed, where do you start? And are people with ADHD more promiscuous? These are just some of the questions I asked leading psychiatrist Dr. David McLaughlin in this week's episode. Watching the numbers go up really helps me avoid burnout and helps me keep producing better content for you all. If you find the content valuable, please click subscribe if you're watching on YouTube or follow on whatever podcast app you're listening to. Thanks so much and enjoy the episode. David. Hello. <laughs> thanks so much for coming on. I've been excited to have a psychiatrist on the show for a little while. How are you? I'm really good. I'm really excited to be here and uh, thank you for having me. I think I'd love to start with a really... I suppose simple question, but there are a lot of people who might see stuff about ADHD on the internet, or they might even have a diagnosis, and they might still be confused as to what ADHD actually is. Yeah. So I suppose a simple question is, what is ADHD? Okay. Um, it's a neurodevelopmental disorder. Um, although I actually, I don't really like to call it a disorder. Um, I, I know I sometimes talk about it being just about a variation um, in the same way that some people are left-handed, some people are right-handed. Um, but it's a neurodevelopmental difference, I suppose, um, in the way that our brains work. Um, it's, it's typically characterized by um, difficulty with attention, distractibility, as well as hyperactivity um, and impulsivity. Um, and it, but it, with every person as well, it can present in different ways. Um, and it's most often diagnosed in childhood, but we're mm. seeing more and more people um, presenting later in life at the moment. I've seen lots of um, conflicting stuff on social media about where it comes from, what causes it. I think 
the consensus seems to be that it's hereditary, but I've seen some narratives saying that it is a trauma response. So what, what's going on? So most of the literature in the evidence, all the research studies would show that it's, it's largely, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a biological condition. Mm. Um, so there's a huge genetic, um, sorry, I'll start again. Your genes play a huge part in whether or not you have ADHD or mm. not. Um, and your genes will code for uh, things like the, the dopamine receptors or the norepinephrine receptors, all the pathways which um, are responsible for, for ADHD. Um, so by far and large, the biggest contributing factor to whether or not you have ADHD is it's your genetics. There's some other evidence that shows that things like low birth weight or being born premature, so being born before 36 uh, weeks, also plays a large role in, in whether or not you would develop ADHD. Um, but it's, it's, it's very biological. Mm. It's, it's, and the biggest factor is, is your genes. Do you see it presenting differently in women to men sometimes? Yes. So I, so I work in the, the, the Priory Hospital in, in Roehampton. And previous, before that, I was working in the NHS. Mm. And I worked in an adolescent clinic in the NHS. And most of my patients when I was working in the adolescent clinic were young teenage boys. And they were very often extremely hyperactive and very impulsive. Mm. And they were brought to the clinic because um, people found them difficult to, to teach or the parents were finding them difficult to look after. So they were coming to the attention of me as a NHS psychiatrist because it was problematic for other people mm. around them. Um, what I find in my, my priory clinic is that it's often it's, it's adult women that are coming to my attention mm. and it's because it's distressing and problematic for themselves. Um, and they tend to not be so hyperactive or impulsive, but they have problems with inattentiveness and distractibility. And actually it can be enormously distressing for them. Um, and they've lived with know years or even decades of feeling like they're a failure or feeling like they're inadequate that they're mm. bad mothers that they're bad at their job um and that's enormously distressing for them and so it's often a real sense of um uh relief or validation when they receive that diagnosis um there's there's three different subtypes of adhd there's adhd which is uh primarily hyperactive mm. and impulsive ADHD, which is primarily inattentive. Mm. Um, and then there's a third type, which is the most common, which is the mixed subtype where you have a mixture of, of both uh, kind of uh, kind of uh, collections of symptoms. Mm. Um, so yes, does it, does, it, does it affect men and women differently? From my clinical observations, I see, yeah, I've definitely seen different kind of populations of people with ADHD. That's so interesting. And I'm thinking back, I, I was diagnosed with combined mm -hmm. um, and I, I never really related to a lot of the physical hyperactive stuff. You know, I think back to my early years and I was always kind of just sat in the classroom, pretty quiet. Um, my school reports always said that I was, had potential, but I was always didn't get involved, but I had all, a racing mind all the time. Mm. Um, constantly 
racing thoughts, thinking about um, often quite bad stuff, like the hyper hyper focusing on on negative thoughts. And interestingly, my psychiatrist who diagnosed me said she asked me if I went to private school, mm. and I said yes. And she said that she had seen it quite often in in private schools. I don't know if you've got any experience of this that that because private school, for example, is so structured um, yeah. that actually she sees a lot of patients coming in perhaps slightly later um, because it wasn't picked up in, in that type of system. Mm. Um, do you think the fact that women perhaps internalize it, do, is, that, is that something chemical going on there or do you think that's a societal expectation that women and girls should behave a certain way so they feel a societal pressure to constrain their traits sometimes? I definitely, I definitely think that there's different expectations on boys versus girls. I, I grew up with three older sisters mm. and I think uh, I was definitely, there was more allowances made for me mm. um, being a boy and I don't think that's right. I think that's obviously wrong. I think, you know, we should all be, all genders should be treated equally. Mm. But there were certain um, behaviours that were permitted for me because I was a boy and I do wonder if that's kind of true probably across a lot of people's experiences where young boys running around, being hyperactive, climbing up the curtains, mm. that's maybe, um, it's less frowned upon. Um, uh, and, you know, I don't think that's right, but I think that's definitely true that society has different expectations on girls versus boys. Mm. And I, I imagine that young girls growing up are aware of that. And so they probably do regulate themselves and self-monitor their behavior and have this desire to conform to what's expected of them. Mm. Um, but, you know, hopefully that's something that's going to change. Um, mm. But I think, I think you're, totally, you're, totally, you're totally on the money there. Do you think that is, has a slight crossover with masking and perhaps women and some boys who feel like they can't act out how they might naturally feel like doing because of this physical hyperactivity, so they internalise it, they act in a certain way that they think society deems acceptable for them? I mean, do you think that in itself is the definition of masking? Uh, yeah, I think I think I think ma the motivation for masking almost certainly comes from the societal expectations as pressure. What do people want me to do or expect me to do? Mm. So then, um, you you have this desire to conform to it. But I think that's also one of the big reasons why people with ADHD often have anxiety because they they recognise that they're a bit different. Um, and that they don't always conform and they maybe self-monitor themselves. They're aware that they're perhaps a bit restless or fidgety mm. or that they sometimes say the wrong thing because they, the words come out of their mouth before they've, they've thought about it. Mm. Um, and knowing that you're different is actually really anxiety provoking. And especially when you're very self-aware of it. Um, yeah. So it's, I don't know. I think that's why it's, it's really important that you have platforms like this that, show people that okay yeah you're different but there's lots of people that are different mm. um and you know increasingly we're, we're living in a world where it's, it's more and more accepting tolerant um even celebrating people for being different mm. yeah no absolutely do you, do you see a equal split i think you mentioned earlier the ratio of male to females who come to you what does that look like I, again, so I used to see loads of teenage boys mm. who would be really hyperactive um, and, and impulsive. But now what I'm seeing uh, increasingly in, my, in my, my, my private clinic is 
is parents um and actually often it's 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 mums mm. um often the parents come to me because their children have received an NHS diagnosis because it's easier for children the, the waiting lists for children to get NHS diagnoses are are much shorter right um but often the parents will see these behaviors in their children mm. and yeah. it's it's now getting this diagnosis of ADHD and the parents see this and they think hang on a minute that this is exactly yeah. what I was like I do all of these things oh and this like this is actually the symptoms of ADHD well this this is I can relate to all mm. of this um but predominantly it's it's the mums that are are coming to me and they're they're predominantly coming with um the inattentive symptoms and the difficulty with concentration um and all of the other things like um that, that are secondary to that like maybe running late for things time mm. blindness and um, losing items um but also it's the other thing as well is it, they're not just coming to clinic because they're a little bit forgetful and not packing their children's packed lunch boxes it's it's the distress that comes secondary to that um and the the feeling that they're they're a failure that's normally mm. what what drives them to come and come and see me i uh, yeah it's it's i've spoken to a lot of parents on on this podcast and there was one particular um woman who was phenomenal and she said the main stress for her was she often forgot to do things that were that were actually fundamental in the safety of her children for example something silly like she had a, a gate in her garden which she sometimes forgot to lock and mm. that was immediately blocking the grass where her child plays to, to the road like outside her house and and it was that kind of one day she her husband came home and he realized she hadn't locked it and that guilt and that shame of what could have happened if and it was that which took her to to get assessed um, so absolutely in line with what you were saying, that, that sort mm. of secondary. For people who are looking to go and get assessed for ADHD, they'll come to see someone like yourself. What does the ADHD assessment process look like? Yep. So normally what I would do is I would send them out some pre-assessment questionnaires, forms beforehand. And I would also ask them if they can send me any, any other relevant medical records um, from their, their GP or any other psychiatrist that they've seen before. And then I'll have a read through the pre-assessment questionnaires mm. before I meet them. Um, and that sometimes gives me kind of a sense of what's going on. But every time I meet somebody, I always, I always meet them with a totally open mind um, because there's lots of things that can look like ADHD that aren't ADHD. So then when I meet somebody in clinic, mm. um, I usually just sit and listen to them and give them that chance to tell me their story. I think there's a real uh, value in making somebody feel listened to and heard and to validate their experience. And I think that's really, really important to do right from the very beginning to validate this, that what somebody is telling you mm. is, is, is true and that you believe them um, and that they deserve to have a really good assessment, but also to get the right diagnosis so that they can get the right treatment. Um, and sometimes that results in somebody getting a diagnosis of ADHD, but other times we might find that there is a much better explanation for, for what, what you've been experiencing. Mm. <clears throat> what, what other conditions look similar to ADHD then, that someone might think they have ADHD, they come and see you and you say, actually, you've got, what other conditions might they have? Yeah, I would say about 10% of the people that come to see me in clinic who suspect that they've got a diagnosis of ADHD 
actually have another diagnosis called emotionally unstable personality mm. disorder um, or sometimes called borderline personality disorder. And it looks really similar. Um, there's a huge overlap with symptoms like the impulsivity or emotional dysregulation or rejection sensitivity dysphoria, which I know is something that's commonly experienced by people with ADHD. Mm. And although they look quite similar, the treatment pathways are very, very different. And it's a bit like if I can use a, um, uh, a less palatable that, uh, kind of analogy, but diarrhea. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going there with diarrhea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, diarrhea is also really inconvenient. Um, and, uh, but there's lots of things that can cause diarrhea. Mm. You know, it could be Crohn's disease. It could be ulcerative colitis. It could be um, celiacs. It could be IBS. It could be um, a trip to a, India. A trip. Yeah, it could be a dodgy. It could be a dodgy curry. So there's lots of things that can cause diarrhea. It looks. It looks very similar. Mm. Um, and so what I ask somebody to be really open-minded with is when they they come in to you know, this might be ADHD. But regardless, I'm I'm here to listen, um, and we'll explore this together with an open mind, and let's figure out what what the cause of this is. And if we can get the right diagnosis, we can get the right treatment. So, so when you're assessing someone for ADHD, what are there any specific signs or symptoms that you're looking for? Yeah. So um, there's two diagnostic criteria uh, categories we use. Um, ICD-10, DSM-4. And so you have to have a certain number of uh, symptoms um, or presentations across uh, the three different domains. So impulsivity, hyperactivity, but also inattentiveness. Uh, Those symptoms need to have been present from childhood. So typically before the age of 12. And also uh, typically in multiple different environments. So not just at school, not just at home, but seeing those, those, that constellation of symptoms in multiple different environments. Mm. And the other thing that we need to do as well, as well is we need to exclude any other more likely diagnosis. Um, and that's really important because you want to get, get somebody the right diagnosis so you can give them the right treatment. Mm. Apart from the borderline personality disorder, mm. are there any others that could be confused with ADHD? Yeah, a- absolutely. So I've 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 met people who have told me I'm really restless, I'm really fidgety, mm. and when I'm in a in a board meeting, I can't stop moving, and I'm I'm sweating and I'm fiddling with my pen, mm. um, and I've got racing thoughts, and then I listen to them, and then I ask them, well, how are you when you're at home when you're watching a film, and they'll say, yeah, absolutely fine, and so that's an example of where this is maybe somebody who's got social anxiety. And they are, they are really restless, they are really fidgety, and they mm. do have racing thoughts. But it's because of social anxiety. And so that person might need cognitive behavioral therapy, mm. or they might need uh, SSRI, which is a type of antidepressant. But it's not ADHD, it's, it's social anxiety. Mm. Um, the other thing actually I see as well is people who have very low self-esteem and incredibly self-critical. Um, and they might be low in mood and depressed. Mm. But when you're low in mood and depressed, you also may have difficulty with concentrating and you can even get something called pseudo-dementia, which is where you have such significant problems with concentration and and memory mm. that it 
it, it causes cognitive deficits. So again, that's the other diagnosis that I would I would want to exclude to make sure that somebody is not depressed, they're not anxious, um, and that they don't need a, diff- a different um, treatment pathway. It's fascinating. Do you think ADHD should be labelled as a disorder? I don't personally. Um, I think that um, there's people who there's people who live in the world with us. Um, I'll start that again. Do I do I think that ADHD should be labelled as a disorder? Mm. Um, that's maybe a question that's best answered by people with ADHD themselves. Um, I think that I, I I look at ADHD as as a, a variation, um, and that some people have ADHD, some people don't, some people have. Um, autistic spectrum or on the autistic spectrum some people aren't but it's for me it's about it's a bit like if you're right-handed or left-handed um and if you're left-handed and the world is designed for right-handed people it can sometimes be jarring and distressing and it might be more difficult for you to maybe use a right-handed pair of scissors if you're left-handed but being left-handed isn't a disorder it's not a disease it's just that it's difficult if the world around you is designed for right-handed people and i do think that's the same for people who are neurodivergent um you might have adhd or you might um have autism but i don't i don't view those that as a, as a disorder or a disease it's just that you're different and the world around you is designed for the majority and you're 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 divergent. You're 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 part of a minority of group of people. People. I think there'll be a lot of people listening who wish that they could tell their younger versions of themselves what you just said. <laughs> yeah, but I I caveat that or I balance that with the recognition that actually it can still be really distressing. Mm. Um, and that's why I was a bit hesitant because I know that there's people who've got ADHD and it is it's really it's really crippling for them and it's distressing and they wish that they didn't have it. Um, and those are the ones that often come looking for, for treatment or looking for medication. Um, and sometimes, you know, you hear this, this, this phrase about, um, having ADHD or having autism being like a superpower, Mm. but actually I don't know if that's always helpful for people who do find it distressing. Um, and it can almost be a little bit patronizing, I think, because it doesn't recognize how difficult it can be to have ADHD or to be on the autistic spectrum. Mm. I agree so much. And I would always stop short of calling it a superpower because I think that it's enabled me in some areas of my life. Um, and I think with self-awareness, I think anyone with ADHD can, can find out the strengths and lean into them. But until you've got that self-awareness and, and you perhaps are still figuring out how to mitigate the downsides, you know, it was definitely not a superpower for me and for many people. Um, for a lot of the time and I think if you're in that stage and you hear someone say it's a superpower you can then think well not only do I have ADHD I've got the shit version of it which can be really detrimental yeah well that puts you under pressure I mean imagine imagine getting a diagnosis of of autism then feeling this burden burden you then have to deliver some sort of I don't know you've got some responsibility to the world um like if an autism diagnosis and then assuming everyone must think you're great at maths because of, I imagine, the stereotype that a lot of people, because of 
representation. Yeah. Yeah. You you said something actually which I, I think is really great. Actually, you talked about self-awareness. And this is why I do think that platforms like this is they're 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 amazing because you you provide a, a mirror to allow people to 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 look at other people with ADHD and also maybe recognize some of those traits in themselves um and to to gain that self-awareness. And although people come to see me in clinic from a medical perspective and they're maybe looking for medication, I think a lot of the time what they really get is the validation, but also some sense of self-awareness. And then they're much more able to regulate themselves and check mm. on themselves and realize, hang on a minute, this is a really good example of me being impulsive right now. Maybe I shouldn't do this. Or this is one of the traits like that I'm acting out, like talking over somebody mm. because of my impulsivity. Um, and I can have that self-awareness and regulate myself a bit better. You mentioned earlier about ADHD treatment. So if someone comes to you, you assess them, you give them a diagnosis of ADHD. What would, what would be the next steps in terms of treatment options for someone yeah. like that? Um, so I'd always follow the National Institute of Clinical Excellence guidelines, um, or for short, the NICE guidelines. Um, and what that tells us to do is to obviously do a really thorough examination, take a history, um, exclude any other more likely um, diagnoses. But if you are going to go down the treatment pathway for ADHD, um, the, the the gold standard treatment is with a stimulant medication, something like methylphenidate. Mm. Um, typically, I would prescribe my adult patients a long-acting um, methylphenidate, um, which might give them the benefit medication for up to about 10, 12 hours. Um, and that's usually the most effective uh, treatment for people. About 70% of people will, will respond to methylphenidate. Sometimes you have to go with another stimulant medication, um, like lisdexamphetamine. Mm. Um, uh, and then if, if stimulants aren't effective, then you might want to consider maybe a third line treatment with a non-stimulant medication. Um, but it's different for every single person. Mm. Um, and of course, throughout that whole process, you're you're counselling the individual with about the side effects that they might experience. So common side effects with um, the stimulants are loss of appetite. Uh, your blood pressure can go up. So that's something that we have to monitor carefully mm. and start you on a low dose of medication and titrate it upwards. My goal is always to get patients on a, the lowest effective dose that works for them. Um, but there's other less common side effects um, that are still worth mentioning. Things like insomnia, um, blurred vision, dry mouth. But I always try and give people as much information as I can or as much information that is use, as, that's going to be useful to them mm. um, and work collaboratively and find the right, the right treatment pathway for the individual. And it doesn't always involve medication. It's other things like coaching or um, sometimes just, like you say, self-awareness. Mm. Um, and understanding yourself and that validation that's enough for a lot of people I wanted to touch upon a topic that is quite close to me and I think is close to you as well and I know that it's close to a lot of people in the community and that's the link between ADHD and addiction mm. um, just from my observation of speaking to many people and, and going to um, meetings for alcohol addiction there seems to be a, a, a link between ADHD and addiction. So is that something you've noticed? And is there 
an explanation as to why what's going on there? Yeah, definitely. So um, again, in I, I do alcohol, I, I do a lot of alcohol detoxes, um, and I've I've also treated people in inpatient rehab services for things like cocaine addiction, and I have had lots and lots of people who've come in to see me initially because of their addiction. Mm. And I meet them in clinic or I see them in the in detox or the rehab unit. And I think, oh my gosh, this person's got undiagnosed ADHD. And uh, this is, again, it's anecdotal data, but what I've seen is when we've treated them for their ADHD, their substance misuse, cocaine misuse, alcohol misuse has all decreased. Um, I think often people with ADHD, they maybe self-medicate. Um, so if they're, if they're struggling to fall asleep at nighttime, they might start drinking heavily. Um, the other thing that I've seen anecdotally is really interesting is people with ADHD telling me that cocaine has a um, almost paradoxical effect, the opposite of what you'd expect it to do for them. And mm. they, they describe it as um, calming them um, and helping their thoughts to be clearer and more linear. Um, I would absolutely advocate for people not to do cocaine. <laughs> it's a horribly expensive habit and really bad for your health. Mm. Uh, please do try and get an ADHD assessment and treatment. Um, but yeah, clinically, I definitely have seen a huge overlap with people who've got ADHD and addiction. Mm. Uh, you also asked me, why is there this overlap between people who have uh, addiction and ADHD? Um, and the reasons I imagine are incredibly complex, um, but people who have ADHD often have a, a deficit of uh, dopamine in their prefrontal cortex. Um, and that makes it difficult to regulate their emotions or to, um, uh, to act out executive functions. Um, but also dopamine and another neurotransmitter called norepinephrine um, are also heavily involved in mm. uh, the pathophysiology of addiction. So if you have dysregulation of those two neurotransmitters in ADHD, there's also a good chance that you've got dysregulation of those two neurotransmitters in uh, which would predispose you to, to have becoming addicted to different substances, including alcohol or cocaine. Mm. Gosh, yeah, no, it's fascinating. I think there'll be many people listening who will, will recognise that, especially the self-medication part. I think for me, it was always, how can I turn the volume down in my head? Mm. Like alcohol did that for me. And I, I, from speaking to other people as well, I've, I've heard a lot of people um, say that. It's that self-medication. It's, it's, they figured out that alcohol is the, the, potentially the solution to their racing mind. And, and then when, when they perhaps start drinking um they just get this huge relaxation actually rather than mm. traditionally you, you might get a buzz they actually go the other way and it's it almost becomes quite they crave more and more of that Do you yeah. think people with adhd generally perhaps are more susceptible to hedonistic behavior so yeah so one of the, one of the um one of the key features of adhd is impulsivity mm. so um, again, it's, in, and it's because of the, the differences in their prefrontal cortex, they, um, your prefrontal cortex should be helping you to make really good decisions, weighing up the pros and the cons, looking for the evidence, um, that this is a good idea versus a bad idea. 
and regulating that part of your brain that says, you know, the limbic system that says, hey, this looks like fun. Let's mm. do this. Um, like, you know, the, all the, the kind of the, ang- the, sen- the emotional epicenter of your brain, the limbic system, which where emotions like anger, lust are, ge- are generated from. Mm. And our prefrontal cortex should regulate that. People who've got ADHD, they, they've been described um, before as having a Ferrari brain, but bicycle brakes. Mm. And so they often rush into making um, decisions very quickly. Um, but that could be a decision to do something hedonistic like taking substances or drugs, alcohol, or engaging in risky sexual behavior mm. um, or any sexual behavior, <laughs> risky or not. Um, but they tend to rush into decisions they, and it's because of that impulsivity, which is a key feature of ADHD. Mm. Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it makes sense, to, again, observationally, that do you think people with ADHD are perhaps on average more promiscuous? Ooh, that's, oh gosh, that's a really difficult question to answer. Uh, I don't have the epidemiological data in front of me. Um, are they more promiscuous? It's definitely something that I ask about in clinic. Mm. Um, I ask people about different risks. And one of the things I ask, one of the risks is about um, exploitation um, or risk of harm through misadventure. And, you know, that could be exposure to sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancies. Um is it something I've seen in clinic? I've, I've definitely had patients in clinic who've told me, yeah, I've, I've made, I've done some things that I regret. Um, and I, uh, yeah, anec- anecdotally, I've definitely seen it, but I don't have the epidemiological data in front of me. Um, uh, but it's definitely something I ask about. Yeah. I'll, I'll, there's one thing I wanted to ask, and that's, is this such a big topic amongst the community? And, and it seems to be, it's been labeled as rejection sensitive dysphoria. Mm. It's this like intense reaction to rejection or mm. criticism or even a perceived criticism. Mm-hmm. Someone might say the slightest thing and you can almost boil over in rage and yeah. you lose rationale. So is that something you've, have your patients brought that up in clinic and what's going on with that? What, is there an explanation as to what causes rejection sensitive dysphoria? They don't always bring it up and they certainly don't always use the, those exact words or terminology, rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria, but they describe it or I sometimes see it myself. Um, and I watch, I watch patients in the way that they react with it or respond with receptionists mm. and um, even the way that they maybe talk to their partner if, if they've come into clinic with a partner or their partner might describe that to me. Um, and it's really, really interesting actually because people who have this other diagnosis, the alternative diagnosis, which is emotionally unstable personality mm. disorder or borderline personality, they often are really, really hypersensitive to rejection or criticism. Um, and that's because of a difference in the neurobiology of, of their brains. Mm. Um, but I suppose it's understandable that if somebody is neurodivergent mm. and they have ADHD or autism, if they've grown up being a little bit different, um, society's not always kind. Other school children might be mean to you because you're a bit different. Um, mm. And you may have experienced very real rejection or um, you may have been ostracized because you are neurodivergent. And I think that rejection does prime people 
um, and it primes them to be more vigilant when it's going to happen again. Mm. Um, and it's painful. It hurts. It hurts when people are unkind to you or, or, or reject you. Um, so it's, it's definitely something that I've, I've, I've had people describe and, and tell me about. Mm. Um, but it also makes me um, curious to see is, you know, could this be the rejection sensitivity that's commonly seen in, in another diagnosis? Mm. I saw a statistic that sort of leans into what you were just saying, that perhaps neurodivergent people are exposed to so many thousand more negative comments in their childhood mm. because they're acting slightly different than their classmates or they, even maybe from their teachers or their friends they're, because they're exposed to so much more criticism mm -hmm. or even slight remarks um at school that that builds up and compounds and when they in their adulthood that then they're so responsive to the slightest criticism because it's kind of and the reaction perhaps is is that they just don't want to go anywhere near it because they had so much of it as a child mm -hmm. do you think that's that's similar to do you think that theory holds much weight yeah I, absolutely i think if you it's what's that expression um once bitten twice shy and i think if you have experienced social rejection or you've been ostracized um or rejected i think it it must condition people it must prime them to maybe anticipate the same thing happen again mm. Um, and then if they anticipate it, then maybe avoiding it or taking measures to prevent it from happening. Um, so yeah, I absolutely think there's, there's, um, there's truth in what you've said. Just focusing on, because um, again, it's a comment that I see a lot from my community and that's grief. Mm. And um, do you think people with ADHD are more susceptible to intense, having a worse experience when it comes to grieving? So it isn't, I thought, because I, I watched one of your earlier podcasts and you talked about the, the grief of um, when you receive a diagnosis of ADHD mm. and realizing that you've, there's been so many things in your life that you've lost because of the ADHD, like perhaps lost um, education opportunities or work opportunities or relationships that have been damaged. So mm. I, I definitely think that when people receive diagnosis of, of ADHD, they maybe have this sense of grief or loss. Um, but usually there's, it's counted with a sense of relief, mm. um, an understanding of why their life has been the way, the way it has been. And also that kind of sense of validation, which usually is more beneficial than, than, than that sense of, of, of grief. Um, I think people with, yeah. Mm. No, that's perfect. I think it's, yeah, I think you've, you hit the nail on the head. I think if you get a diagnosis slightly later on, you might be quite upset about perhaps the life that could have been or the opportunities that might not have been passed off or the relationships that might have lasted longer or the job that might have, you might have not left if you knew that you needed to ask for some simple accommodations in the workplace, for example. And all mm. of that can compound into into quite a, um, 
a grieving process for the for the person who gets that late diagnosis. I suppose it's um, what's the the average age of the of the patients that you see in, in your clinic? Um, all different ages. Um, <clears throat> I'm a general adult psychiatrist with a special interest in. Um, ADHD and addiction um, and I have endorsement from the Royal College of Psychiatrists mm. in general adult psychiatry and also addiction psychiatry um, but because of because of that I, I tend to see people from aged 18 and upwards when I was doing my training I did I did train in uh, in child and adolescent mental health services as well and um, but right now I look after people aged 18 and upwards and I often see people who are at the end of their secondary education about to go to university and they're often brought by their parents mm. um, who are anxious about their their 19, 18 year old, 19 year old son or daughter doing well at school. And then I see the other population, which is the, the parents who've, whose children have, have received a diagnosis. But there's one of my colleagues at work um, and he's recently treated a 72 year old who has been diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 72. So, um, but just, I'm keen to point out as well, this isn't something that's suddenly developed at the age of 82. It's, it's been something that's been undiagnosed uh, mm. for this whole, this whole period. Um, ADHD doesn't, um, it's not, it, it can't be an acquired illness. It's not something that suddenly develops. It's something that you, you have your whole life. I was, you just made me think, um, if there's a big, catastrophic stressful global event like a pandemic or a stock market crash or something that causes mass panic mm. and that perhaps incite adhd traits in someone at a particular point in their life so if you have suddenly it leans on from what you just said if, if you start experiencing adhd traits at a point later on in your life then it's probably not adhd because you have to have adhd throughout your whole life. Mm. So can some of the traits of ADHD almost be a response to stress triggered by a huge global event or any, or more of a, even a local event in someone's life? I don't think it would be a response to the, the stressful event, but there's definitely times where um, some of my patients will notice their ADHD symptoms. And that's usually because of what's demanded of them from their environment. So for example, if you were a professional skydiver, ADHD might not be a problem for you. But then if you suddenly change careers and you had to be an accountant, your ADHD symptoms may now start to cause you problems and be distressing. And so you want to seek help. But you haven't actually inherently changed as a person. It's environment around you and what that environment around you demands of you that, that has changed. Mm. Um, but those symptoms, those traits, those qualities that give you that diagnosis of ADHD will have been, must have been present um, previously. Um, it's, not, it's not an acquired illness that suddenly develops. Mm. We've seen a, a surge in ADHD content on social media and it's a reasonable explanation as to why many people are becoming aware and seeking an assessment. Mm -hmm. What do you think of some of the, social, the ADHD social media content and do you think that there's perhaps a risk of misinformation with some content creators putting out content? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I actually think, I think social media is a phenomenal way to disseminate knowledge and to, 
to teach people um, about ADHD. And in general, actually, I think it does a really great job. It's really empowering and it helps people to gain that sense of self-awareness, which is really useful. Um, and there's definitely a need for it because NHS waiting times are, are far too long mm. for ADHD assessments and private clinics are far too expensive for most people to get access to um, that kind of knowledge experience, uh, knowledge and um, information. There, a lot of the content is really entertaining um, and it's incredibly relatable mm. and that's why it goes viral. Mm. Um, but there was a study published um, about a year or so ago um, which showed that about 50% of the social media content about ADHD was actually inaccurate. Half. And it, about half, yeah. And it contained misinformation. And one of the common, one of the common sources of misinformation it was, it, or, or inaccuracies was it was content creators who were sharing their very personal experience, but they were sharing it in a way that was overgeneralizing it as if it was going to be true for everybody, but it wasn't. So there was that, that kind of sense of over overgeneralization. Um, so yeah, it's one of, it's one of my kind of, um, pet peeves, uh, with, with social media, there's, there's really no, uh, verification about the quality of, um, medical information, clinical information that's being disseminated. Um, but overall, I actually think it does a really good, I think it's a really good, it's a really good thing that it exists. I would just say to people, watch this content but also take it with a pinch of salt mm. and also, um, you know, get information from other really reliable sources like the Royal College of Psychiatrists, um, charities that, you know, support people with ADHD or mental health charities like MIND. Mm. Um, and if you can, you know, see a psychiatrist. I'll put the links to those sources in the show notes. Um, I've got a couple of questions just, just to finish off. Uh, from the community. I, everyone was very excited when I said I was bringing on a psychiatrist. Oh, good. The show. <laughs> um, just three. Um, well, I don't know. There were about 150, but okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, we don't have time. Um, yeah, so first one is a very blunt one, I suppose, is do you think ADHD is overdiagnosed? Ooh, um, that's a really difficult one to answer. Um, is it overdiagnosed now or has it been underdiagnosed in the past? Um, I honestly don't know. I think time will tell. Um, I imagine there's going to be clever epidemiological. Eh, there'll be, I imagine in the future there'll be epidemiologic. Eh, why can't I speak today? Um, I imagine there'll be epidemiologists in the future who will do longitudinal studies mm. um, and and, and find the answer for us. Um, is it overdiagnosed now or has it been underdiagnosed in the past? I don't know. Maybe we're just seeing a correction of like loads of women or, and men that weren't aware and now they're suddenly, and then everyone's just flooding in at the same time. Yeah. I think the world that we live in just now is different. Mm. Um, and I think there are more distractions in the world that we live in, there's more things that compete for our attention, especially our phones. Mm. And that hasn't existed before. Um, but whether our genes, whether our neurobiology um, has always 
conditioned us to being distractible. Um, but just now it's, it's manifesting as a problem because of the distracting technology around us. Mm. Um, that's something I'm, I, I do wonder about. Um, but the important thing is, you know, to listen to people who come in and tell you that they're struggling. Um, and for me not to get too distracted about whether it's being overdiagnosed now or underdiagnosed in the past. But the, the critical thing for me actually is to listen, to, to see the person in front of me, listen to them and be open-minded and, and treat them like an individual. Mm. Thank you, David. Um, next question. I'm scared I'll be dismissed by my GP. Mm. How do I start the conversation? Okay. I think, uh, tell your GP exactly what you're experiencing in the language and the words that feel most natural to you. Um, and one of, one of, I suppose I'd be, I'd be curious about why this person is worried about being dismissed. Um, but my, my advice would be just tell your GP in the, the words and language that feel most natural to you. Um, lots of my friends are GPs. Mm. They really want to help. They're sometimes a bit um, overstretched. Um, but people, come, people become doctors because... They want. They don't do it for money. <laughs> they they don't do it for the the the, the sociable hours. Um, you know, they generally do medicine because they're really interested in science and they love people and they want to help. I think just to add some colour to that, I think just from the narrative that I've seen, I think that might be alluding to some people think that and perhaps it's an older generation of GPs mm. maybe roll their eyes a bit when someone comes in and say they think they've got ADHD because yeah. oh you've just seen something on social media. Don't be silly. Um, or maybe they don't even slightly older generation of GPs might not even believe that it's a real thing. I think mm. that's what she's alluding to, um, to add a bit of color to that mm. comment. Um, so I suppose just going off tangent a bit, is that something you are aware of? Some GPs who just aren't on board with neurodiversity or ADHD being a thing? Yeah, quite, quite. I, I imagine there are hopefully a small minority, a tiny, hopefully a tiny minority of, of, um, doctors who who have a limited understanding of neurodiversity um certainly when i was at medical school 20 years ago now <laughs> it's horrifying <laughs> to say that but when i was at medical school 20 years ago i think i'd have a half hour lecture on adhd mm. and, and autism and general practitioners gps have to um do an enormous number of Things and look after they have to be generalists right so they're they're really good at lots of different things so they're not going to be experts in neurodiversity or adhd or autism mm. but they are experts in in general practice um so i wouldn't give them too hard a time it might be that you even need to educate your gp i always describe myself as um well actually don't, i don't describe myself some people would describe me as an expert by education, but people with ADHD are experts by experience. So you might need to also um, educate your GP mm. and, and point them towards the different resources and sources that you, that you found. Great advice. Just finally, David, thank you very much. Um, I'm an adult and I suspect I have ADHD. I want to seek an assessment. Where do I start? Okay. Um, you... You should go to your GP as a first, um, 
okay, so if, if, if you're an adult and you suspect that you've got ADHD, speak to your GP as first protocol. Um, describe what it is you're experiencing, the symptoms that you're experiencing, and they will likely um, direct you towards an NHS um, adult ADHD service to mm. get you an assessment. Waiting list times vary. Um, Sometimes it can be really quite long. It, it can be two years in different parts of the country. Um, there are a number of private clinics that um, uh, offer ADHD assessments. I work in the Priory Hospital in, in Roehampton. Um, this isn't a plug for them, but I know that we have lots of really good consultants and kind of world experts. Um, and it's 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 really great. I feel really privileged to get to work in that kind of environment. Mm. I'm also really aware it's just it's just expensive. It's and it's not affordable for a lot of people. Um, and I think before you go and pay for a private ADHD assessment, it is probably worthwhile speaking to your NHS GP, um, looking at information online, being open minded that maybe this isn't ADHD. Could, there's lots of other things that it could be. Um, but those are the two routes, I suppose, um, for an NHS assessment going via your GP. Mm. And if that's just too long, then uh, getting a private assessment. This, I might be misguided. Is there, is there something called right to choose, which is where essentially the government taxpayer pays for someone's private assessment? There, so there's, um, oh gosh, I actually don't know an awful lot about this scheme, but there is, I know I'm aware of a scheme called the right to choose. And that means that the, the patient has some degree of uh, autonomy in terms of where they receive their mm. their treatment. Um, I don't know much more about it than that, if I'm totally honest. Um, um, and I don't know if that means that you can perhaps go, you can receive your assessment um, in different parts of the country. I'm actually I'm not well enough informed um, to give a reliable answer, but it's something to look into and ask your GP about it. Ask your GP about the right to choose scheme because they'll be best placed mm. to, to tell you. Cool. Gosh, David, I've learned a huge amount in oh. the, the last hour <laughs> talking to you and I'm sure everyone else, else has as well. Um, thank you so much for your time today and thanks for coming down to London. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's great to meet you as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I've had fun too. So thank you. Amazing. Thanks so much. Cheers. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 